Well, it's that time of year that you better get your wallets ready because they're about to hurt a little bit. If you give any Christmas gifts to anybody, you understand that uh, Thanksgiving week, first week of December, second week of December, it's a hard week for your wallet. It's a hard week for your bank account. If your bank account looks like it's got about, I don't know, 200, 300, 400 bucks in it right now, get ready for it to uh, get close to zero uh, pretty quick because if you've got to buy gifts for your mom and your dad and your siblings and people like that, it kind of hurts. Actually, I was looking it up this week, uh, a lot of people spend a lot of money at Christmas time, so much so that they're estimating this year, 2022, that Americans are going to spend more at Christmas time than they ever have, ever in history. Maybe that's because of inflation or whatever else, but apparently they're estimating that Americans will spend $950 billion at Christmas time this year. That's billion with a B. To put that in perspective, that's like having 950,000 people, 950,000 people all spend a million dollars at Christmas. That's a lot of money. And you will probably be contributing to that. I will probably be contributing. I know I'll be contributing to that uh, this year, buying gifts for my family and my friends and people like that. And uh, buying Christmas gifts is nothing new. In fact, you actually see that in the Bible. One of the reasons we give gifts is because we see that practice of giving gifts and even expensive gifts in the Bible. Remember when Jesus was born after uh, a couple of months and after uh, a period of time after he was born, there were three people that showed up at his doorstep and they brought gifts. The wise men brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And if you ever thought about those gifts, one thing you notice about them is that they are expensive gifts. The reason they're expensive gifts is because if you're going to give anything to a king, it better be good. I mean, imagine a king were to show up or a president or an important person was going to show up to your house and you had to give them a gift. What would you give them? You wouldn't give them something low. You wouldn't give them something lame. You give them whatever the best of what you have is. That's what you give to kings. But if you think about a king or a president or a rich person or someone who's important, it's not just that they get expensive gifts and people give them to them, although they do. Kings give very expensive things. They give costly things to people that they know. In fact, if you ever get a gift from a king or, or an important country or something, usually they're going to be huge and, and in comparison to how much gifts that they have or how rich they are, there's going to be some kind of comparison there. The, the richer the person that you get a gift from, probably the bigger the gift is going to be. You guys all understand that. You know that. Well, if we call Jesus our king, and we understand that the Bible says that Jesus is the king, and as we study this morning, if you went to main service, that God owns the whole world, if you get that concept in your mind, you've got to realize that whatever gifts Jesus gives are going to be big gifts. In fact, in Ephesians 4, Paul's going to explain that Jesus specifically picked out gifts that he was going to give to his church, to you, and to me. And this morning, all we're going to look at is a couple verses where he explains how amazing those gifts are and how amazing Jesus is for giving those gifts. So while it's Christmas and while it's Thanksgiving, sorry if you're a big Thanksgiving person, we're still going to talk about Thanksgiving a little bit this morning. Um, but while we're in that holiday season, it'd be good for us to turn to this passage. So open up in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, where Paul, all he talks about is how generous and amazing Jesus is. It's important for us to see because we just talked about how we as a church are supposed to be united. Then he says as a church, remember, you are united because you have one Lord. We have one faith that we share. We're baptized in one baptism. We've got one Holy Spirit who guides us. We have one God and Father who's over us all. After he explains all that stuff, he drops into verse 7, what we're looking at this morning. He says, but grace was given to each one of us. Okay? Each one of us is what's connected to that word, but. 
He doesn't say and. He doesn't say and, hey, and he gave something to all of us. No, he's saying we're so united in this, correct? We're one church. We're one body. But God uniquely gifted each person in his church. So he's going to draw a comparison. Although we are one body, God does give us a bunch of diverse gifts, a lot of different things that he gives us as a church. He gives you gifts that he didn't give me, right? And we see that actually played out in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about all the spiritual gifts that God gives people. Spiritual gifts is just another way of saying ways that God has empowered you as a Christian to serve the church in a way that's different than how he's empowered me. I can't serve the church in the same way you can, and you can't in the same way I can. We're all gifted in those different ways. That's what he said. He said, Jesus has done that for us according to the measure of Christ's gift. According to the measure of Christ's gift. What does that mean? Well, we already talked about how rich and important and powerful Jesus is, but he's actually going to further explain that. Uh, Verse 8 is actually kind of a complicated uh, quotation. He quotes the Old Testament here. He doesn't quote it word for word. He changes a couple of the words here. Basically, it gives the same meaning, but he's going to explain what he's talking about, about this generous king. He's going to draw a comparison from this Old Testament text. Verse 8 says, Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So that quote right there, if you were to take it out of all of its Old Testament context, and just to understand what that quote's saying, it's saying there's somebody who goes up a hill, and as he goes up a hill, he's the king, he's going to go sit on his throne, but on the way he gives things to the people that are loyal to him. That's what that text means. In the Old Testament context, in Psalm 68, verse 18, that's the direct quote, it's about God and how amazing his gifts are to the people of Israel and how God is the king. I mean, you can look at all the different kings Israel had, and, you know, there's David and there's Solomon and, you know, some good kings, some bad kings, but ultimately, there's one king that rules over all, and that's God. That's what Psalm 68's all about. But Paul takes that Old Testament quote about how God is the generous king, who gives gifts to his people, and he says that's what Jesus does. There's no distinction, really, in the Old Testament interpretation and the New Testament interpretation. The point is, uh, this is a picture that you probably have not seen before. Maybe you've seen it in a movie, uh, but you just don't see this every day. I don't see this every day. Here's the picture. You have a king who's just defeated a bunch of armies. You can imagine this. Imagine Alexander the Great or King Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible. And there are these powerful kings that conquer all these different lands. And they take the gold and the silver and they take all the cows and the sheep and the oxen. And imagine if you're a king going back home, you've got this long parade, this long trail of people and things and animals behind you that are coming into the capital city. And what this king would do, any king, is as they go up the hill to their capital city, They start giving those gifts off to the people that are loyal to them. You can imagine if you had a powerful king and he had allies in certain nations. As he's going back home, he starts distributing those gifts that he's conquered, that he's taken, that rightfully belong to him. Now that king starts giving them to his loyal subjects. That's the picture that's painted of Jesus. Now, if the picture of Jesus as a warrior and a king and a conqueror is unfamiliar to you, I want to familiarize you to what the Bible says about Jesus. He's not just called the lamb. He's not just called that. He's also called the lion of Judah. One very important thing that all of us need to understand about Jesus is that he's a king and that he's a conquering king and that he's a king who can take what he wants because everything belongs to him. Nothing Jesus takes is stolen 
basically, right? If, if you've got two kings and they're facing off and one steals all the, you know, the gold and the silver and all the people and makes them slaves or something like that, it's like, well, that's stealing because it doesn't belong to them. Well, the reality is we've seen it all throughout the book of Ephesians. Have you seen where it says all things are in him? Everything comes through him. John 1 says all things are from him and through him and to him, Romans eleven thirty six. So Jesus owns everything. And remember we talked about like early on in the fall where we said that Jesus is the head of all things and everything is going to come underneath the headship or the rulership of Jesus? This is what he's saying. As Jesus does this, he's going to give gifts to the people that are loyal to him. Keep reading. Look at verse 9. Paul explains. He says, in saying, this quote, he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? So here's a simple way of understanding this, although it's complicated. Um, If you go up a hill, it means you went down a hill first. Can we all, we can vibe with that, right? Um, If you're going to go up a hill, it means you came down a hill first. You might be saying, what are we talking about? Okay, when he says that God the king goes up, when he ascends, what he's saying is the one who ascended is the one who descended first. So now bring this back to what Paul's talking about. He's talking about, this is Jesus. So when this passage in Psalm 68, 18 says that Jesus ascended and went up the hill and took his throne, one thing that you have to remember is that was his throne in the first place. He never had to leave, but he did leave. And when Jesus left his throne, we call it the incarnation. It's what we celebrate at Christmas time. Right? When Jesus leaves his rightful place at the right hand of God, he comes down to earth lives a perfect life, then dies on the cross. And when he died on the cross and rose again, do you know what he did? He conquered a lot of enemies, like sin, like death. And as he conquered those enemies, there's something that happened after that that we don't pay very much attention to, but all the New Testament authors keep talking about. And we should talk about it today. It's the time Jesus went and took back his throne. Do you know when he took back his throne? There's a particular time. Acts chapter 1 describes it. It's called the ascension of Jesus, the ascension of Christ. Some other you know, churches might celebrate in different ways, and basically what the ascension is is that time Jesus was standing on the Mount of Olives, and he went up, like literally he ascended, went up. His feet lifted off the ground, his body was still there, and as some people have said, um, what that means is the dust of earth is now on the throne of heaven. Like literally, the dirt from earth, is now on the throne of heaven because Jesus was on earth and his feet were there and he ascended. That's kind of crazy, but what happened there was when Jesus took his throne, he took all of his power. That's why right before that, in Matthew 28, 20, or Matthew 28, 18, he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. So what is this picture of Jesus he's painting? Jesus on a throne. What did Jesus do when he took his throne? Well, he gave all these gifts to his people. Verse 10 says, He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he may fill all things. Now, this is a very complicated passage, which is why, if you've read it before, this is one of those passages you just kind of read and skip through. He's like, I don't really know what that means, ascending, descending, uh, uh, whatever. What's the easy thing? And then verse 11 is really easy, right? We're going to get to verse 11 in a second. But I want you to understand verses 7 through 10 before we get to verse 11. He's saying Jesus is the king. Jesus is on his throne. And what Jesus did as he took his throne was he decided to give gifts to his people. Now you're thinking, okay, well, let me fill in the blank. What are the gifts? It's like if I told you, hey, I'm gonna give you a bunch of gifts at Christmas. I'm gonna give you a bunch of gifts. I'm gonna give you a bunch of gifts. And I kept saying that. Like, okay, can you get to the gift part? Because that kind of seems more important to me, right? Um, I know we feel that way, 
But I want you, before you even look at verse 11 and think about the gifts, I want you to think about what this is saying about Jesus. He has all authority. He has all authority. Jesus has all authority. Do you think of Jesus as the one who has all authority? Do you think of him that way? Or do you think of him like a guy with nice hair, a beard, brown eyes, and a warm smile, right? Do you think of him like a fisherman, you know, with a robe or a carpenter? Like, when you think of Jesus, what do you think of? Imagine, not just you, any person. Ask the average person, what do you think of Jesus, and what would they say? They would say probably something like robe, long hair, beard, warm smile. Nice guy, right? That's what people think about Jesus, okay? Um, Are those things wrong? Well, I don't know if he had long hair. I don't know what color his robe was, right? Maybe he didn't have a warm smile. Maybe his teeth weren't straight. Have you ever thought about that, right? Oh, maybe. Who knows, right? I don't, maybe they were straight. I don't, don't get into a theological argument on that. But um, point is, you have all these pictures of Jesus because you've seen movies and shows and pictures and even ancient photos. You understand that we don't have any pictures of Jesus, right? So Jesus probably doesn't have blue eyes. I mean, Jesus was probably a five foot six Jew, right? Um, that's, that's what he was, right? I don't know if he's five foot six, but you know, that's average back then, right? So he probably wasn't as impressive. He wasn't six foot four, and he didn't have long curly hair and, and a big you know, smile. Maybe he had a big smile. I can't tell you if he didn't have a big smile. Um, but my point is, if I ask you to picture Jesus, most of us picture that, something along those lines, right? For some reason, he's always wearing a little bit of blue on his white robe. You know what I'm talking about? You ever see pictures of him? It's like, for some reason, he always got blue. Like, there's no red on him. He's never wearing red, right? That's like, ooh, bad guys wear red, right? Um, He's never wearing a black robe, right? That'd be like sketch. Like, whoa, no, that's not Jesus. That's like Satan or something, right? You, you, you wouldn't picture him that way, right? But think about him. What do you picture when you picture Jesus? That's what this text is going to challenge for you. It should challenge you in this way. What you should picture when you think of Jesus is a king on a throne with all dominion who can tell you to do whatever he wants, and he has all authority to do so. And he has every right to demand whatever he demands of us, because he's our king. He's the Lord. He's not just king of the people who are Christians here. He's also king of everyone who's not a Christian here. He's the Lord of all. He's the cosmic ruler. Like, that's the picture of Jesus in verses 7 through 10. That's why, for point number one, I'd love for you to write down, I want you to view Christ as the conquering and generous king. Before we even talk about the gifts, uh, the gifts are important. We'll talk about the gifts he gives, but before we talk about the gifts, I want you to view him rightly. View Jesus as this conquering, generous king. Most people view Jesus in his humble form. When, when, when you ask them, well, what is Jesus like? Well, he's really kind, and he's super nice, and he would sit, and he'd, you know, he'd help me with my math homework, and he would, uh, you know, he'd take time out of his day, and he'd just talk to me about, you know, coffee, and, you know, okay. Right, he'd say, I don't know what you think of, of Jesus, but I, I just want to challenge that a little bit, Because the version of Jesus that you think of is Jesus in his most humble form. I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong. It's just incomplete. Okay? That's a very important distinction. I'm not saying that viewing Jesus in his humanity, in his time here on earth, is wrong. It's not wrong. In fact, all of us should think of him that way. But it's an incomplete picture of Jesus. It's kind of like this. Did you hear that the Lowe's down the street at the town center, do you know what they're making that into? Did you hear about it? It's going to be a Tesla supercenter. Okay, so if you like that, you like that. If you don't like that, you don't like that, whatever. Very mixed opinions on the Elon man, right? Uh, it's going to be a Tesla supercenter. 
So imagine once they build it and it's all done, you walk in there and they've got the showroom. I just imagine it's such a big building. They probably are going to have multiple showrooms with different cars. Imagine, you know, when, when the cars go out, but they're not like being shown to everybody when there's some big, uh, you know, velvet black tablecloth over the cars. You've seen, you know, pictures of that, right? Um, I've never been to like a car show where they like unveil it, but I've seen videos of that, right? You can imagine walking through a uh, a showroom where the cars are about to be displayed, but all of them are like covered in those things. If I were to walk through one of those and be like, oh yeah, I saw all the Teslas. Yeah, they're, they're kind of whatever. It's like, oh, well, how did you see them? Well, I saw, I mean, I walked by. They just kind of look like a black blob. I mean, they're just a velvet black tablecloth over the top of them. I don't know anything about them, but I mean, they're car-sized cars and, you know, normal. And you said, well, you didn't really see them then. I'm like, no, I did see them. Did I see them or did I not see them? Answer the question. Think about it. Did I see them or did I not see them? I did see them, but I I saw them covered up, right? I didn't see all of their their glory because I use the word glory. That's a Bible word, but you understand what I'm saying. I would see them, but I didn't really see them. I didn't really know everything I can know about them because, you know, I didn't hear them start up, although they have terrible sounds because those Teslas, they, they sound like, you know, sounds like a Nintendo 64 when you start it up. It's just a video game, right? They don't sound like... Uh, you know, a Ferrari or a Bugatti or Lamborghini, you turn those things on, rev them up, and that sounds like something. You feel something when you start those. Teslas, whatever. But they go really fast. I've heard the supercharged Teslas, they'll go like 0 to 60 in like 1.9 seconds, some crazy amount, the, the fastest ones ever. I could tell you I saw the Tesla, but I, I didn't really experience the Tesla until I get in there and some race car driver goes zero to 60 in two seconds. Then I really experience what that Tesla's like, even though I could say I've seen it. Here's my point. When we think about Jesus and we talk about Jesus, most of what we're talking about is Jesus in his veiled form with the cover on. There was a time in the Bible where Jesus had the cover taken off and the people who saw him freaked out. It was in Matthew 17 at the Mount of Transfiguration. When Peter, James, and John saw the glory of Jesus, they freaked out. They were the ones who were with him, they saw him, they talked to him, but when they saw him as he really is, everything was different. Same thing happened in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1, you can write this down, Revelation 1, 12, uh, the apostle John, the one who knew Jesus closely, even calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved, when he saw Jesus after the ascension, after his glorification, Everything was different. Listen to this. This is Revelation 1.12. John says, I turned and I saw the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That was what he describes when he sees Jesus again, glorified, ascended at the right hand of God. And look what he said. When I saw him, when I saw Jesus, full glory, actually what he normally looks like, the like normal state of Jesus, not the humble state of Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. But he laid his hand on me 
And he said, fear not, for I am the first and the last. I'm the alpha and the omega. And he goes on. But what he's going to say there is, look, you got to understand something about me. I am not who you think I am. Many of us have this view of Jesus, that Jesus, meek and mild, he would understand all my problems, and, and he's just so sweet, and he's so kind, and it doesn't matter if I sin, it doesn't matter what I do. You have to understand. What John said Jesus looks like is a warrior, like a king. You have to see him that way. And if you don't see him that way, you have an incomplete view of Jesus. I'm not saying he's not caring. I'm not saying he's not loving. Do you see what he does? In his glory, he condescends to put his hand on John's shoulder and say, hey, stop freaking out. Fear not. Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm on your side here. I'm your king. I'm your Lord. I'm your savior. But yeah, is there fear involved? There's totally fear involved. That's the king. I want you to see this in a more complete way in the original text that Paul quotes. I want you just all to turn to the left in your Bibles. Turn to Psalm 68. Let's look at this passage he's quoting to get a fuller picture of this. I want everyone to turn there. Psalm 68, back in the Old Testament. I think you're going to get a better appreciation. I know I did this week as I read Psalm 68, understanding like what, what is Paul talking about when he says Jesus is this king who's giving gifts? What, what is he talking about? Well, Psalm 68 kind of fills in some of the blanks here. Psalm 68, I love the beginning, what it starts with. So it's a psalm from David, the king. Remember, he's the king. He's a king who's gone up to the hill where his capital city is. He's defeated enemies. He's given out spoil to different people. That's, that's David. He's the author. And he looks even beyond his kingdom here. I like the title that the ESV puts in here. God shall scatter his enemies, right? That's who God is. He's the king who takes his enemies and he scatters them. Look at verse one. Psalm 68, one. God shall arise. When he gets up, his enemies shall be scattered and those who hate him shall flee before him. Right? Our world right now does not believe that. Does not believe that. Many of us in this room don't actually believe that when God decides to become judge over your life that you'll want to run away. Revelation says that People will want to hide themselves in caves and call on rocks to fall on them because they just don't want to face God. They want, they'd rather die than see Jesus. They just don't even want to. Because when he gets up, when he arises, his enemies will be scattered. Those who hate him shall flee before him. Verse 2, as smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. That's a bad picture so far. It's a scary picture. Look at verse three. But the righteous shall be glad when you see Jesus in his full glory. If you're a Christian, you're on his side, instead of being terrified and afraid and wanting to die, instead of that, you're gonna be glad. You're gonna say, finally, yes, there he is. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Verse four, sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Now it's a command for us. It's like, hey, hey, everybody, everybody who's on God's side, before this even happens, before God arises and goes and defeats his enemies, let's, let's all sing before that. Let's sing. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, Yahweh. Exult before him. You might say, well, just that's a big picture of God. I, I see that, but does God even care about someone small like me? What, I mean, if he's so big and glorious and majestic, I feel like this is, makes God really distant and non-caring and all that stuff. You might feel that way until you read verse 5. Look what verse 5 says about what God does. He calls him father of the fatherless or the orphan, the people who don't have 
a family, don't have a loving father, says, no, he's the father of those people. And he's the protector of widows, the one who doesn't let ladies in the church or ladies in the world get taken advantage of, cares for them. That's, that's God in his holy habitation where he lives. Verse number six, God settles the solitary in a home and he leads out the prisoner to prosperity, but the rebellious will dwell in a parched land. Like he's just drawing this big distinction between God's righteous people who might have a really hard time. They might be widows, they might be orphans, they might be prisoners, they might be a lot of things, but if they are rightly aligned with God, do you understand that when God arises and his power is put on display, that if you're on his side, he settles you in a home. He frees you from your prison, so to speak. But the rebellious, the people who want to go against what God says, whether you are an orphan, widow, prisoner, or just a normal person, but if you're a rebel against God, he says, no, you're going to dwell in a parched land. Verse 7, oh God, when you went before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, you should be thinking of that 40 years where Israel went through the wilderness. That's what David's calling back to. He's given a historical reminder. He says, when you went before them in the wilderness, the earth quaked and the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. In the wilderness, God led the Israelites out of Egypt. Israel, the God's people, were slaves in Egypt. You know this story, right? And in the Exodus, what happens is God leads them out of slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with 10 plagues. Do you understand how God saved Israel? It's by smashing Egypt. It was by breaking the pride of an evil king, Pharaoh. It was by, at the very last, because none of the other plagues worked, by taking the life of his son. That's how Israel went free. Exodus 15 calls God, God is a man of war. God's a warrior. He triumphs over horse and rider. He throws horse and rider into the heart of the sea. That's how God's described. But he went to Mount Sinai. When you hear the word Sinai, what you should think of is the Ten Commandments, right? And many of you already thought of that. At Mount Sinai, that was the mountain that God met Moses at the top of the mountain and gave those Ten Commandments and said some things like this. You are going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And he makes a covenant and a promise to that group of people, that nation, said, you're going to be the one nation out of all the nations that I'm going to love and set my affection on. And you're going to follow me and you're going to serve me. And you know the story. As Moses was on Mount Sinai, what were the people doing down below? They were sinning. They were breaking God's rules. And the very act of God giving them the rules, they were breaking those rules. When that happened, God made another set of tablets because Moses broke one of the sets because he was mad at them for breaking the rules. It's interesting. Um, and he goes on, and he leads them into the land. When, when the Israelites go into the land, do you know what that time is called? When they enter the promised land? It's called the conquest because Israel had to take out all the enemies. And they were not very good at it, so God had to go before them. And that's what this passage is saying, that God is the ultimate warrior. He's the ultimate king. No matter what Israel did, God was their warrior. Drop down to verse 15. Now we're in the land of Israel. David's the king. We're back at uh, modern times, so to speak, from David's perspective. Verse 15 says, O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan. O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mountain that God has desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. Right there is a poetic way of saying that two mountains are mad at each other. One mountain in particular. What's the mountain that's so mad? Well, the mountain of Bashan. What's the mountain of Bashan? Well, it's a mountain up in the north in Israel that's tall, 
It gets snow. It's impressive. It's called a many-peaked mountain, right? It's like when you look at uh, the Rocky Mountains, and you say, wow, those are amazing and, and grand and glorious. And then you look at, like, Saddleback Mountain, and you're like, yeah, you're all right. I mean, you get snow, like, once every two years, maybe. I mean, you look at Mount Baldy. You look at Big Bear, and it's like, wow, those always get snow. I mean, those are amazing and impressive. And they look down at that, uh, that lowly little Mount Saddleback, and they're like, yeah, kind of lame. And it says the many peak mountain of Bashan looks down at this other mountain, which he hasn't named yet, but it's the mountain called Zion or Jerusalem, where in Israel, um, Jerusalem, that this hill, which we're going to get to the importance of this hill in a minute, but this hill is not very high. It's about 2,000 feet in elevation. Right? So it's half the size, actually, of Saddleback Mountain. And Bashan and many of these other mountains are even taller than Mount Saddleback, Saddleback Mountain. And they can look at this little mountain and say, man, why are you the place that God chose to dwell? Well, it's because it's the place that God chose to dwell. Look at verse 17, back in Psalm 68. Check it out. It says, yes, the chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. What happened to Mount Sinai? God's presence with God's people. Now it's saying that's not on Mount Sinai anymore. That's not on the, the Arabian Peninsula. Now that's in the sanctuary. What's the sanctuary? What well, was that worship center that they had in Jerusalem? That that's where God is right now. He's there. And whether you're a big mountain or a tall mountain, you can look at God's mountain and be jealous, but that's where God is. It might be small. It might be unimpressive. That's where God's presence is. Look at verse 18. This is where Paul quoted from. It says, you, who's you? Okay, let's look at you. Who's you? It's not Paul, it's not David, it's not the Israelites, it's God. God is you. So David, the author, writes about the Lord. He says, you ascended on high. You went up, so to speak. You came to your place, and then you were leading a host of captives in your train. That's what happens when a king takes over. He's got a lot of people behind him. He's got his friends, and sometimes he's got his enemies, and they got their chains on, and they're gonna do whatever the king has them do because they're conquered. Right? That's what God, the Lord, does with death, as you're going to see in verse 19. Verse 19 says, blessed be the Lord, who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. To God, the Lord, belongs deliverance from the word death. That's what this is ultimately looking forward to. But drop back to verse 18. It says, when he leads this host of captives, he receives gifts from among men. Right? That's what Psalm 68 says, in Ephesians 4, it says that he gives gifts, right? And you're like, okay, is there a difference between those two? Well, the difference is when you give gifts as a king, right? That's what you do. You get all these gifts, and then what do you do with them? You disperse them. You give them. So Paul just kind of does a shorthand way of explaining what Psalm 68 says. It's not maybe a direct quotation like you like with MLA format and, you know, a Turabian, uh, you, know, you know what Turabian is? Chicago style. Yeah, whatever. That's what I have to do on all my papers, right? Yeah, Cody says yes. Uh, anyway, it, it doesn't have the quotations that you like, and Paul doesn't do it exactly that way, but he's describing the situation where God has all these gifts, and then he starts giving them to his people. Verse 24, check it out. Psalm 68, 24 says, Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary, right? And, and can you picture this? Picture that this city of Jerusalem. It's set on a hill, and you've got a king going up to this sanctuary, and you've got all these people behind, and he's got all these gifts, and he starts giving them to his people. That's the picture that Paul has been painting in Ephesians chapter 4 for you and for me. That's why if you read it really carefully, it's very helpful. 
if we blow past it and we're like, okay, well, I don't know what he's talking about, we miss this amazing picture of Psalm 68. If you drop to the end of this psalm, I like how David ends this. Psalm 68, look at verse 32. He starts looking beyond his kingdom and his city. He starts pointing at you. He starts pointing at me. He says, oh, kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. So kingdoms, not just Israel, not just the, Samari- the Samaritans, not just all the people that are around, not just the, the, the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Philistines or the Egyptians, not just them, but the Americans and the Californians and the people who are here, the people who are there, the people who are far away. He says, all you people should sing to God, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice, ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the skies. Think of him as big. Like that's, that's, that's basically what I want you to do today. Take whatever your view of Jesus is, take it higher. Make it bigger. Say, I want to ascribe to him power that I haven't before. I want to think of him as more majestic and glorious than I've ever thought of him because that's what he keeps telling us in his word. I love how he ends it in verse 35. Awesome is God from his sanctuary. Awesome means that it should fill us with awe. Make us speechless. Make us look at it and say, whoa. Awesome is God in his sanctuary. The God of Israel. Look what it says he does. I love how he ends this because this is playing into Paul's point. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. That's exactly what Paul is saying Jesus does to the church. He gives power and he gives strength to his people. Blessed be God. Remember, blessed be God. Remember how that started the whole book of Ephesians? Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be God. Right? And it goes into the whole thing about how God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Many people have looked at this passage and said, I think Paul was actually you know, studying Psalm 68 when he wrote the book of Ephesians. I think that's a great insight. I think that's powerful and valuable for us that we should know this psalm too. That Jesus is this king and he is this God. Whatever your view of Jesus is, it needs to be more. It needs to be better. This idea of triumphal procession actually shows up all throughout the New Testament. It shows up in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Paul says about Jesus that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This idea of demonic forces and temptation. It's like temptation and, and sin and death and these demons, they come behind Jesus with the, their hands handcuffed and Jesus took them captive. He triumphs over them. That's what he did when he died on the cross. That's what he did when he rose again. That's what he did when he ascended to the Father. 2 Corinthians 2, 14, same idea. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of knowledge of him everywhere. Right? Now our job is, it's like we're in the train and we're not telling people about what Jesus did. We're not telling people to submit to King Jesus because he's our Lord and he's theirs too. Jesus took this role of the triumphal king at the ascension. We often miss this, and I mentioned this before, but we miss the importance of the ascension of Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 1.3, you guys studied this last year. You preached all the way through the book. But Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Then it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as his name is inherited is more excellent than theirs. Saying, 
Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than everything. And that's where he is right now. Your view of Jesus, let's get back to that. That question I asked you at the beginning, your view of Jesus, is it like this? Or is it just like, yeah, Jesus, meek and mild. I, I don't really think highly of him. If you're a Christian, it needs to be elevated. If you're not a Christian, I want it to be elevated too this morning. I want you to say, Jesus is the king. I'm going to submit to him with my whole life. View him as the generous and conquering king. The reason I said generous is because he gives gifts. And this whole sermon, I've been avoiding the last verse. Have you noticed that? I have not even read Ephesians 4.11. And that's because I want you to get this sense of Jesus' power and his authority before we talk about verse 11. But as we turn there, Ephesians 4.11, I want you to think, what would this king give after all that buildup? I mean, that's a lot of buildup for just what's the gift? Whatever this gift is, it's important, it's necessary, it's valuable. I mean, ascribe whatever word you want to it. It's got to be big, right? Problem is, if we look at this verse, we probably don't think this gift as, is, very, is a very big deal. We look at this verse and we say, oh, well, yeah, right, that makes sense, but that's not a big deal to me. This should be a huge deal to you. Look at verse 11. What did he give? And he gave, here we go, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. That's his gift. That's what he gave. He gave leaders. He gave men to the church. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? That after all that, you'd think, okay, what is this big thing that Jesus is going to give to the church that's going to be important and foundational, and we need it? What do we need? What is it going to be, Jesus? It's apostles, the men who took God's word in the first generation. The prophets, the people who spoke God's word in that first generation of Christians, who, was, who were able to, by God's spirit, say, this is what God says. They didn't have a New Testament. They weren't able to say, oh, well, you know, Romans 4 says that, you know, circumcision is not a big deal, so uh, we're not going to do that. They, they didn't have that, so what they did was they had prophets. God especially gave power to certain people to have that. Then he gave evangelists. Those are people that took God's word to a new area. Shepherds, that's actually the only time in the whole New Testament the word pastor is used as a noun, as a term. It's right here. The word shepherd means pastor. That's just the common way of saying it today. We could call it a lot of different words in the Bible, but the people who lead the church. And then it says, and teachers. The people who are teaching the church. And usually, the shepherding role and the teaching role go together. That's what God gave, leaders. Have you ever thought about that? That there's an amazing gift that God gave the church, and it was leaders. It was people. That's what the church needed. For what? Read verse 12. We're gonna get to this later. It's not what we're studying today, but verse 12 says, the purpose of this was to equip us, the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all, all of us Christians, attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what did God think you needed? What did God think I needed? He thought I needed and he thought you needed leadership. It's kind of amazing. It's a big deal. Point number two, I want you to view godly leaders as Christ's gift for you. That's verse 11. I want you to view godly leaders as Christ's gift for you. You have two subpoints here because there's two groups that are mentioned here. There's other leaders that God has given you. He's given you teachers and parents, and those aren't listed here. Right? Those are good gifts, and we should recognize those too. But let's talk about the people that he mentions here. Two groups in particular. Five, technically. Five groups. Some people say four groups. Because if you're looking at the word shepherds and teachers, do you notice that there's not a word the before teachers? If you're looking at your text, verse 11, it says he gave the 
apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. That's because in Greek, it doesn't have the same words at the beginning. It just says, you know, shepherds and teachers. So some people take those as one thing. I think there could be some split between them, but um, the point is, he gave leaders. Who were the leaders? Well, the first group, letter A, is the men who brought God's word to the church. That's the apostles and prophets. The men who brought God's word to the church. And, And you might think, okay, well, I'm thankful for Peter, I guess. Is that what I'm supposed to do? Like, I'm thankful to James, the author of, you know, that epistle. Like, what what does this mean for you and I to be, like, thankful for these gifts? That's a good question. Uh, I want you to remember who these people were. The apostles were the original disciples who had direct contact with Jesus. We know that because Paul actually says, I'm the last of the apostles. I'm the last and I'm the least is actually what he said. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, says this. Paul describes what Jesus did after the resurrection. He says, then he, Jesus appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul is the last in this long, you know, not that long, just, you know, a dozen or so people who were called apostles. So there are zero apostles today living right now. I can say that for a fact because Paul says he was the last one. Last of all, Jesus appeared to me. So what's the qualification of being an apostle? You had to encounter the resurrected Jesus and he said, you're an apostle. So Paul was the last one. We got other people like Peter, James, John. You got other people before. But their role at the beginning of the church was go into all the nations, share the truth, and say, I saw Jesus. Do you understand that the apostles can do evangelism slightly differently than you can? Slightly differently. Here's why. If you tell someone about Jesus, and you tell someone about what he did for you, um, you can't say this, oh, I hung out with him for three years. Oh, I saw all of his miracles. I was there as an eyewitness. You can't do that. I can't do that. These apostles could do that. You can't say, oh, I saw him turn water into wine. It was amazing. There's just no other way to do it other than what Jesus did. You can't say, I saw him die on the cross. I saw him give up his spirit. You can't say, I saw him dead, and then I saw him alive. You can't say that. You can say that he did those things, but you can't say, I saw it. The apostles could. That was that first group, the apostles. And then it says, he also gave the prophets. I want you to think about who these prophets are. The New Testament describes a spiritual gift in the church, the early church, called prophecy. Here's what prophecy is. You speaking God's word. So this is a distinct group from the apostles, although the apostles did this as well. But this is a distinct group from the apostles, people who were guided by the spirit to teach truth from God. You might say, well, Aren't there people today who are guided by the Spirit, who teach truth from God? Yes, but in a different way. These people took it directly from the Lord, directly from God. We now take it indirectly from God. The people who do this today are are categorized as the teachers. That's office number five listed. Because we're not getting direct revelation from God and saying, oh, God told me, you know, this morning to preach this sermon. He didn't tell me that, right? But his word, it's the next thing, you know, in his word. So I guess God told me to preach this because it was the next thing here. But it wasn't direct revelation like God whispered in my ear say, hey, John, 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 do Ephesians 4 today. That didn't happen, right? So I'm not a prophet, okay? Um, and there's not prophets today. And people say they're prophets. They don't understand what prophecy is all about. Prophecy was about this, teaching the truth to the church when you didn't have a Bible. They didn't have the New Testament, so they needed it. They didn't have the book of Romans, so they needed someone to say what God's requirements were. They needed it. You might say, well, why do we know this is foundational? Well, because Ephesians 2.20 We already studied it, but I'd love for you to write it down. Ephesians 2.20, under letter A, says this, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. 
Those are foundational roles in the early church. The apostles and prophets, we don't have any more. But our church is still built on those. And it says Christ is himself, the cornerstone. I want you to think, how in the world is our church built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets? Okay. Do you know how it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets? Um, because everything we seek to do at our church is guided and constrained, if you want to use that word, by the apostles and prophets, right? You see what I'm holding up, right? Holding up a Bible, because this is the work of the apostles and prophets. Obviously, it's God's word behind it, but that was the whole point. It was God's direction for us. That's why, by the way, in our church, we call the apostles and prophets our middle name, right? We don't call ourselves Compass Apostles and Prophets Church, right? We call ourselves Compass Bible Church because this is your manifestation of the apostles and prophets. You have God's word. And before you say, man, I'm bummed, I really wish Peter could be in my living room answering all my questions. Let me just warn you, I don't know if you'd want Peter in your living room, okay? For one, you don't know what he smelled like. For two, um, I don't know if you would want to like always go ask someone where you could kind of read this at any time. You understand like what a gift it is to have God's word, the New Testament in your language, and you're actually able to read? <laughs> no, that's probably something you didn't thank God for this week. But the fact that you can read, most Christians throughout church history did not have access to this right here, and they could not read in their own language and they didn't have such a rich supply of God's word as you do. You have it on your phone. When you're going to the bathroom, you can pull it up and read it. Like, that's so crazy. Right? You ever thought about that? Right? Um, okay, sorry, whatever. You don't like it. But um, you have a Bible by your bedside, and you just read it. You can read any of it. You can read a lot of it. You can read a little bit. Yep, you got it. Right? The problem is we have such a richness of God's word, sometimes we don't appreciate it. If the Bible, if the only Bible in our town was at church and you actually had to go and ask the, the pastor or someone to, to read it to you, you only get a couple chapters at a time, you would savor every last bit of God's word. You'd put it in your heart, you'd memorize it. But because we have such an amazing gift of God's word in our language, sometimes we don't do that. God gave you the apostles and prophets. He gave you his word. He gave you the men who brought God's word to the church. That's a gift. Don't go this Thanksgiving without thanking God for that gift. The second thing that he gave was the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. I've just grouped those all together with this subpoint, letter B. I want you to thank God, view these godly leaders as the men who lovingly lead and teach the church. That's subpoint B. The men who lovingly lead and teach the church. God gave the church men. I mean, that's a huge deal. He gave us people to teach the word. Evangelists, who are they? Well, Philip is called an evangelist in Acts chapter 21. In Philip's role, he wasn't an apostle, right? Uh, even though I think he might have actually seen Jesus resurrected, that's possible he might have, but he wasn't that special class of apostle. His role, he's called Philip the evangelist, the evangelist. Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. And the point was, you're supposed to take the gospel to a new region. So today, I think we do have people who are this role of evangelists. They're the people who like leave our church they go to a different place and they plant a new church. That's what the evangelists did. They'd go from town to town and they'd start new congregations of Christians. The pastors that we've sent off from our church, guess what the Bible would call them? The evangelists. And do you think this Thanksgiving, maybe we should be thankful for the people who've planted churches? I mean, sometimes we just don't think about it because we're just so used to sitting in these chairs and doing church. And, but do you realize that God had to work a lot of things out for us to sit here in these chairs? He had to do a lot in a lot of different people to start this church or whatever church you're usually going to. I mean, think about all that God did. That's a gift. Thank God for the evangelists. 
Thank God for the shepherds. The word shepherd is the word pastor, okay? Um, this is the only time, I said this earlier, the only time in the New Testament this word pastor is used as a noun. It's usually used as a verb. Pastor means shepherd. It's the same word. That's why um, if you look at, if you ever go to school and you do agriculture, let's say you go to like, I don't know, like, yeah, Merced, right? You go to UC Merced and you um, are studying like farming. You do pastoral studies, right? Um, do you know what pastoral studies are? It's not theology. It's cows and um, sheep and things like that. That's pastoral. Um, pastors are called shepherds, right? Uh, that's what they are, right? There's, there's actually three words in the New Testament to describe this office. This one office, three words. One of them is pastor. It's the least used, which is funny that in our day, that's the one that just Americans have picked up on. That's why we call ourselves pastor, um, just because that's the common American one. But another one is the word elder. It's actually the most common one, elder. And the next one is overseer. Elder, overseer, shepherd. Those are the three words in the Bible to describe the group of men that God has chosen to lead each individual local church. The reason they're called uh, shepherds is because they, they act like shepherds, where the church is like a flock. Paul said this, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He says to these group of pastors, he actually, they're called the Ephesian elders. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, the church, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This is Jesus' church here. Right? So as one of the pastors, we got nine pastors at our church. As one of the pastors, one thing we recognize often is this is not our church. This is Jesus' church that he has obtained by his own blood, and he's given us the role and privilege of trying to shepherd it the best we can according to his word. Right? That's our role. Right? He says here, look, Jesus obtained this church by his own blood. But then Paul warns them as he can warn our church, as we've seen happen and we see it happen all over the world. He says, I know that after my departure, right? Paul says, after I leave, there's going to come fierce wolves that will come among you, not sparing the flock, right? Every church deals with that. We got people who come in and want to twist the truth and want to move people away from what God's word says. He says, that's always going to happen. There's going to be fierce wolves, not sparing the flock. And then he says, even from among your own selves, there's people in your church right now who are sitting and listening and doing good things. He says, even from them in Ephesus, they're gonna come men who arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. It's scary. But the role these pastors is to do the work, the main work that's listed. In 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, those are the qualifications for all the pastors. But some of the main work that they're called to do, first of all, is be above reproach, to be qualified, right? Not just anyone um, can do that role. There are some people that uh, says are not gifted and qualified for that role. But it says pastors are supposed to be above reproach, not arrogant, not quick temper, not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy for gain, not um, anything like that. But you, they're supposed to be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And then it says, this is Titus 1.9, a pastor or an overseer, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So he needs to know God's word. He needs to stick to God's word. And then it says, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Right? That, that's like the offense and defense. Right? Pastors are supposed to play both. They're supposed to know God's truth so they can play offense and teach the, the church the truth. And then they're supposed to play defense and help you be defended against false teaching. Right? That's what pastors are told to do. And part of that is in this next role of teacher, right? Shepherds and teachers. Who are the teachers? Well, the teachers are anybody who teaches God's word. And probably these are related to the pastors, right? You guys have a lot of teachers who've taught you God's word. And I want to think to this morning, can you be thankful for the people in your life, your Awana leaders, your, your people in um, your small group leaders, 
your pastors in the past who've like taught you God's word. You understand that without leadership, you would know nothing about God. You would know nothing about God's word, and you just wouldn't. But Jesus, in his sovereign plan, has decided to have you be under teaching and for you to know things, and he's used people for that. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You know, I would say this morning and add to you, for your small group leaders, those of you who are involved on Wednesday nights, and if you're not involved in Wednesday nights, I'd love to have you on Wednesday nights. It'd be really good for you to have a small group. Um, instead of complaining and backbiting and ghosting and ignoring your leaders, uh, like so often happens, can you do the opposite of that? Can you seek their counsel and can you listen to them? Can you grow in Christ and can you be thankful for them? They're God's gift to you. After all this talk about Jesus, the conquering king, what does he decide to give to you? He decided to give you leaders. It's important. Without leadership, I think all of us would be surprised at where we are. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those to whom they'll have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning. That would be no advantage to you. If you make your small group leader's time a, a drag or you make your pastor's life horrible, uh, that doesn't really help you out very much, right? It just gets you a, a worse situation. It just makes everyone unhappy. He says, look, obey them, submit to them. They're keeping watch over you. This Thanksgiving week, I know you're going to be asked all the questions, like, what are you thankful for? Right? Your mom's going to say that. And you're going to be like, oh, I don't know, like the food, like the, my phone, like I uh, I'm thankful for dad's job. Like, I don't know what you're going to say. You know, you always get those things, right? Um, one thing I want to remind you of this week to be thankful for, there's a lot of things you can be thankful for. Be thankful that Jesus is the conquering king who, who gives us generous gifts. And the generous gifts he decided to give you as leaders, the leaders in your life that have shaped you and taught you God's word, you don't even know where you'd be without them. I don't know where I'd be without the leaders in my life, and I want to be more thankful for them. And that's a good reminder for us as we head off to Thanksgiving as we pray to God right now, I want us to be thankful and thank him for the leaders in our life. So let's pray. God, we are thankful that you decided to give us leaders so we can follow the direction of the apostles and prophets from the Bible. We're thankful that we have the Bible. Thankful we have it in our language. I pray that we'd make better use of it. Thankful for the leaders and pastors that we've been blessed with all throughout our life. Just We are undeserving of all your good gifts and I just pray that we would I'll just do a better job at being submissive and respectful and following the leadership that we have and, and pray that you would just continue to show your good hand on our church by just giving us more leaders and more pastors. I pray that you'd bring more pastors onto our pastoral staff as many are planting churches and stuff. We just need more godly, qualified men to come on the staff, so I pray for that right now. I pray that we would pray for that as a ministry. I pray that you would continue to grow us Make us more like you, and we're just thankful for all that you've done for us. Thankful that you include us in your plans. You're our king. We submit to you this morning, and we want to submit to you all week long. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.